Welcome to the Gay Buddhist Forum, where teachers from all schools of Buddhism offer their perspectives on the Dharma and its application in modern times, especially for LGBTQI audiences. These talks are offered freely to the world and made possible by appreciative listeners. If you would like to support our efforts to share the Dharma with underserved audiences, please visit gaybuddhist.org. There you can donate, find a list of upcoming speakers, or enjoy many hundreds of these recorded talks dating back to 1996. So our tradition is to go around and say our names uh, here in the room. My name is Cass. Ali. My name is Jerry. Stephen, Michael, Stephen, George, Jack, Risha, Marvin, George, Jan. Yeah. Okay, and um, today uh, we're very pleased to have back uh, Zerdan Panra, um, an American Kadampa Buddhist monk. Zerdan has been a practicing Buddhist since 2001 and was ordained in 2007 by Venerable Geshe Kelsang Gyatso Rinpoche. He began his ordained life by helping to create a Buddhist temple in Dallas-Fort Worth. Zerdan now lives in Oregon as a vegan minimalist, sharing a warm, gentle heart. Welcome, Zerdan. Thank you. It's really good to be back with everyone. It's been a, a while. My intention was to be able to uh, be graduated with school and have Sunday mornings off, but that hasn't just happened just yet, hopefully soon. Um, and also, happy birthday to Kate Bush today. I don't know if anyone else in the room besides me is a Kate Bush fan, but it's her birthday today, so that's really exciting. And today's topic is on emptiness. It is definitely my favorite topic. It's actually part of my name. The Zerdin part kind of refers to uh, wisdom teachings on emptiness. And so um, I'm going to try to, once again, keep my uh, talking down as much as I can. Uh, so that way there's room at the end for us to have questions and answers, because I think that that's very helpful. Um, but to begin, today's uh, teaching is about uh, realizing Buddhist emptiness. So one caveat that I would like to say before we go into it is that <clears throat> as a Mahayana monk, the things that I say that I get right is because I have had great teachers and the things that I get wrong is because my uh, understanding of the concept of emptiness is imperfect and um, sometimes unskillful. So uh, we'll just proceed the best that we can. And, uh, hopefully get, get some new points. If I know that you haven't had a teaching on emptiness at the Gay Buddhist Fellowship for a number of years. So for some of you, maybe this might be the first teaching you've had on at least in a while. So that's, that's very exciting to me. Um, the other points I have to speak about when it comes to teachings on emptiness is to be patient because uh, the teachings on emptiness are very subtle. And um, 
sometimes confusing, and sometimes uh, it seems like circular logic. <laughs> so be patient. Um, the things that I'm going to be talking about are probably not in your normal everyday experience and perhaps not even in your experience in meditation yet. So if it sounds uh, different and new, that's okay. That's pretty normal. Um, there's hope for the future. <clears throat> that's, uh, I suggest that you seek out teachings on, on, on emptiness as much as you can because it takes a long time for it to process and become part of your experience as a meditator. <clears throat> And then one of the things that I've heard other people say who are long-term practitioners is that um, if you wait to start your meditation practice on the deeper subjects until, you know, like your life calms down, it's probably too late because um, you need to probably be taking on these kinds of issues while uh, you still have a chance because later when it's time to actually use them, uh, you'll then just be thinking about sitting down to begin them. So uh, the teachings on, on um, emptiness have a very practical point to them, too. So I'm just excited to be able to bring it up. Uh, so keep an open mind. <clears throat> uh, you have to begin somewhere. And uh, so slow progress would be great. Uh, my experience of it is that um, I learned and then I would try to repeat it back to someone and get it horribly wrong. And then you just repeat that cycle over and over again. And through um, many teachings and um, friends who have some insight into the topic, then you begin to catch on. It does take time. <clears throat> so in the meantime, until uh, some of this begins to make some sense to you, uh, please continue preliminary practices, <clears throat> which for... Uh, the Tibetan traditions means practicing things like <clears throat> giving. Last time I talked about patience, so continue patience practice. Effort, moral discipline. Um, and the wisdom teachings will make more sense as you meditate. <clears throat> All right, so... There are three root poisons in uh, Buddhist teachings, Tibetan Buddhist teachings. I'm sure that there are in other traditions too, but there definitely is a, an emphasis on them. So if you've ever seen a picture of the uh, painting of the Wheel of Life, in the center of uh, the wheel, you know, the wheel's being chomped on by a big monster Guy and all the beings inside of the wheel are trapped. And if you notice, there's a Buddha just outside of the wheel, and he's pointing, like, showing you the way to leave that wheel of suffering. And he's also in every single little part of the wheel as well. They're like, it's divided into six different parts for all the different ways um, living beings can express themselves in their lives. And he's there. He's there in every single part, even in the hell realms. He's like, Humans and animals and hell realms and celestial type places and he's in every single part of them to help people. So he's not giving up on you no matter where you're at. Uh, but at the center of the picture is a pig and out of the pig's mouth is shooting, um, <clears throat> a chicken, a rooster, 
and uh, a snake. And those are, that's to represent the three poisons at the very center of the wheel of samsaric experience. So that pig is meant to um, illustrate to us ignorance. And out of the pig's mouth, from the mind of ignorance, springs um, anger, symbolized by the snake and attachment by the rooster. If you've ever seen roosters, you know, they do a lot of that pecking, so they're like always wanting grabbing at things. And, of course, snakes are... Um, known to be vicious in that they bite. They don't have any other way to communicate with the rest of the world. They can't reach out to you with arms or legs or so they bite. So um it's meant to illustrate to us that those three root poisons can be undone. That's that's really the central issue. So how does this relate to emptiness? Well the anger part of that picture by the form of the snake is meant to be uh, undone with patience, just like I taught last time that I was here. The uh, chicken or rooster that uh, symbolizes attachment, well, love. I know I said this before last time, and it surprised some people, perhaps. It was a different way of thinking about it for some people. But love is the opposite of attachment. Um, in today's parlance, we might say uh, codependence, you know, Attachment is a, is a mind that says, uh, what can you do to make me happy? It, it's your job. You should be making me happy. And love is the mind that's the opposite. I will, uh, I'm going to make myself happy and then I'm going to radiate love outward into the world and help you to be happy if you need it. And what can I do to make you be happy? So those are the two kind of byproducts of the root cause of the pig in that picture of ignorance. And the cure for ignorance would be the wisdom realizing emptiness. So it's seen as like the central tenet that the Buddha was trying to emphasize throughout his many teachings. Is that um, Some people would even define enlightenment as a, a being who has realized ultimate truth, emptiness. That is uh, one of the distinct characteristics of a person who's made it all the way to enlightenment. Right now we can get glimpses of it. And um, to be really honest with you, uh, glimpses is about as good as it gets at the moment. We don't know what it's like to have a mind that perceives in that way. So what exactly is emptiness? Emptiness is the way that things really are, as opposed to the way that things appear. We kind of have an intuition that we kind of know at the root of our psyche that things aren't what they seem. It's in our it's in our common parlance that way. You say things aren't what they seem. They aren't what they seem, but in a much more profound way. Normally, what we see is we see very solid and real objects. I'm here, and the rest of the world is outside of me, and it feels like a long stretch to get all the way out there to you. 
and it feels like there's this gigantic gap and I'm here and you're there and people are constantly trying to um, get close enough in various ways to feel like there's union so like we won't suffer um, loneliness singularity forever but what the Buddha is trying to teach us through um, many sutras is that there is no gap. That gap is your delusion. Everything that there is and exists in the universe is inside of your mind. That's where it's happening. It's not happening. It's not happening anywhere else. So you can take a challenge like try to try to conceptualize something that is not inside of your mind. What would that be? Is there anything that you've ever experienced that's not inside your mind? In the Western world, uh, Rene Descartes would say, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. This is kind of the Eastern, the Western version of the Eastern thought. So, in essence, the things that we normally see, solid objects that are out there that have nothing to do with, it has nothing to do with me. Like there are people outside the door and they're doing things. There are people all over the world. I'm not even aware of them. They're doing things. It has nothing to do with me. That's wrong. It's actually not correct. The things that we normally see do not exist. We're completely convinced that that's the way that reality is. I'm trapped inside of my mind, and you're over there, and we have nothing to do with each other unless we attempt to communicate. And that's the way that reality is. And enlightened beings say, no, that's not the way it is. So... You can feel yourself uh, in many ways thinking you're going to object to that. Like, I don't know everything that's going on everywhere. No, of course you don't. <laughs> but the things that you do normally see don't actually exist. Because we think that we see things that are outside of our minds. And everything that we see is inside of our mind. In one of the uh, books that my teacher wrote, Geshe Kelsen Jatsun, he wrote, try to imagine an object that has nothing to do with you. There's no way to interact with this object. Can you see it? No. For you, it doesn't exist. So everything that is happening in your world is happening inside your mind. That's where, that's where reality is. It's not outside of your mind. Everything is happening inside of your mind. So, um, when we meditate on these things, you know, there are lots of ways to meditate. You can meditate on your breath. You can meditate on Buddhist teachings. And uh, if you meditate on emptiness, we're instructed to try to um, 
get a glimpse of what emptiness looks and feels like. This is why it's so terribly hard to teach. Sometimes people compare it to like teaching about what chocolate tastes like. You know, you can say, well, it tastes like this other thing or it tastes like this kind of candy. Um, but until you put chocolate in your mouth, there's no way for you to know. So it's teaching about emptiness is like that. I could, I could tell you about emptiness, but it's up to you to try to learn about emptiness and then meditate on emptiness and gain an experience of what it feels like. Cause that is what um, an enlightened mind feels like is it, it recognizes emptiness as a matter of fact. So right now to us, when we meditate, it feels like objects are outside of our mind. And when we meditate on emptiness, we relax our mind and it feels very expansive. It feels like it stretches out infinitely. Um, it has no color. There's no sound. Wide open space. Um, sometimes Buddhist teachers will say, uh, like an eagle soaring through the sky. So it feels very spacious. It is the only object that appears the way that it actually exists. It is the basis upon which your reality is built. And I'm happy to say that recently uh, I've been in, doing some email exchanges with uh, Dr. Um, Donald Hoffman. I don't know if you've ever come across him, but he's super fun. And I suggest uh, as a teaching about emptiness from a man who is very little concerned about the Buddhist world. <laughs> he is teaching about emptiness from a um, cognitive science um Biological evolution, biological evolutionary point of view. His uh, idea is that which is more likely that your, your brain would tell you exactly the way reality is or what you need to know in order to survive, which is, uh, you know, in evolution, we, we talk about, um, uh, survival of the fittest and how can, how can the primate mind be most fit? Well, obviously you're not going to be most fit if you actually know the way that things really exist. What you need to know is uh, encapsulation so you can move through your reality and function and, um, and live. So from a, even from a scientific point of view, they know. We're lying to ourselves. <laughs> it's not our fault. We kind of have to. But I think that it's becoming more common for people to think of it in this way. And I find that encouraging. Okay, so. In general, we can talk about three kinds of emptinesses, but there's the emptiness of everything. The emptiness of, um, the, emptiness of the environments that you're in. <clears throat> The emptiness of the house that you live in, the food that you eat. But 
if you really want to make it personal, when you're going to do these meditations, <clears throat> what you do is you take it down to who you are, the emptiness of the body. So the body that we inhabit right now does not exist in the way that it appears. It appears as if like, I'm I'm somewhere just behind my eyeballs. I'm like just back here-ish. And I'm looking out into the world. And like way down there somewhere is my feet. I can feel them occasionally. Um, we talk about things like my body. I'm sorry, whose body? My body. Okay, so you are the possessor of a body. So the body is not who you are. You you own something. That means that's not what you are. So we can say, for example, um, my arm is not my body. Because, you know, if I were to lose my arm, I would still have a body. So we can see that the various parts of the body are not the body because the possessor of the parts and the parts themselves cannot be the same thing. This sounds like maybe just uh, fun with words. And at first it is kind of weird and fun with words, but it makes more sense when you think it through for long periods of time. I am not my body. The body exists merely as a thought. You gather up all the parts of the body and you have a singular thought body. And that's the way it really exists. It exists in no other way. There's nothing that you can point to in your body and say, oh, there it is. You'll only ever be pointing to a part. So that lack of real existence of the body is the emptiness of the body. And our mind is the same way, you know. Um, you might hear people say, he's not himself today. You know, he's uh, really unwell and his mind is showing it. He's grumpy. He's not himself today. You, I'm, you might even say about yourself, I'm, I'm, I'm not myself today. Because things are going wrong in my mind and that's not who I am. So just like the just like the body, the mind has parts. Um, there are various thoughts. You may notice that there are several thoughts running at the same time. Uh, scientists in our modern day have also made like cuts down the corpus callosum, and when you do that, you find that people have at least two different voices in their head. Every one of us. If you've got two lobes in your brain. At minimum, you've got two voices going inside of you, and they are fighting. <laughs> it's very, very interesting to me, some of the things that we've discovered in more modern times about uh, human physiology. But the mind itself, the mind is not the brain. The brain is the physical object, but the mind is what, um, the mind is, what is running the whole show. 
and it has parts. And so none of those, no one of those one things is your mind. Like the thought that I really don't know what this monk is talking about, that thought. That's just one of the thoughts, just one part. But it's not the mind. You have to slow down to think about some of these things. We really want to say that I know, I, I know my mind. I'm used to it. I live with it every day. It seems to never shut off. It never does actually shut off. Even when you sleep, it's still going. So the mind is the part possessor. You have a mind and it has parts. The mind exists as an imputation, a mere thought about the collection of those thoughts, feelings, and fears. And uh, it exists in no other way. There's no way to gather all those things together because they're scattering all the time. Always like, arising, passing away. That one's a little bit easier to see that, you know, you're not your mind because it's, it's so constantly changing moment to moment. I have uh, lots of experiences where, um, like, you, you go to have an enjoyment. So like, for example, um, maybe you go to see a movie or uh, listen to uh, some music and you think, oh, that's, I really, phew, I don't like that at all. That was, that was horrible. And then some other time later down the road, you listen to the same piece of music or you watch the same movie and it's great. So what changed? The, the work didn't change. The music didn't change. The movie didn't change. You changed. So your perception of, um, of your world is your world. And then it starts to get really personal because uh, when we do these meditations, if you are following a teacher who's teaching about uh, emptiness meditations, inevitably it will get down to a meditation on the emptiness of the self. And then you, feel, you can almost feel like a titan. It's just like, oh, you know what, you're going to take me away? I, I knew I didn't like this religion. <laughs> So the self exists. It does exist. All of these objects do exist. They just don't exist in the way that they appear. The self exists as a mere imputation. So you have the collection of the parts of the body that are not the body, and the, the collection of the parts of the mind that are not the mind, and you gather these together, and you just have the thought, me. And that's as firm of an object as you are. It is really loose. The thing is that we feel so tight about it. I know my preferences. I know what I like. I don't like that. I do like this. Those preferences change Not throughout your life. Preferences change. 
we're encouraged oftentimes to uh, notice the self when it gets bigger. For example, um, someone criticizes you, really cuts to the bone. Then the eye is very present, like, oh, me? <laughs> you, that's can't, no. That's not, that's not me. Notice it gets really large. It fills the whole room. Or, um, I had a friend, uh, once <laughs> who was standing by the side of the road and their car came by and got a puddle and splashed right up on her. She was dressed really nicely. And, uh, in that moment, she could really sense her eye like, this is not okay. Really present, strongly present. So notice when it's really present, when uh, it's being praised. Oh, how, how fantastic you are. You're, you're the best. And you go, oh, yes, I am the best. But then notice uh, times when it's quite subtle. Like, um, <clears throat> you're engaged in one of your favorite activities. Your eye, where's your eye? It's gone. Completely, it's completely disappeared. How like time goes by. If you're engaged in one of your favorite activities, you lose yourself in it. Well, where's the eye at that point? It's, it's very subtle. So it, it, you can see how much it fluctuates. So the eye is just, uh, once again, uh, an imputation. Um, an imputation means you uh, label something. Like, uh, that thing over there, that's me. That's I. I'm that. That's myself. Myself. It's curious. We're still doing the my thing. Myself. Who's the my? If you're the self, then who's the my? Once again, it sounds like being clever with words, but there, there's a very serious error in logic that's happening there. <laughs> So when you get to meditate on the emptiness of the self, the bottom will drop out. Um, you may recognize for some of the first times in your life, it's not necessary. You go on just fine without one. Arguably better. There are real practical times in life when, you know, um, acknowledging that there is a self that needs to be protected and cared for, uh, those are real. Remember, we're not, we're not negating that there is no I whatsoever. There is none. Just doesn't exist the way that it appears. It appears very solid and real when I, when I feel, um, Strong emotions, and it's very present. But it doesn't actually exist that way when we think about it, uh, when we're calm, and we think about it and analyze it in meditation. It's just a thought. It's not more than that. So it, um, it makes our understanding of our body and our mind and our self much more in line with reality. 
Okay, so what is emptiness? Let's just go back to try to, uh, uh, what, what emptiness is. And I'll try to wrap up here so that way maybe we can have some talk about it. Um, emptiness means that things are empty of inherent existence, meaning that <clears throat> they exist in isolation. Um, you are not existing in isolation. You are interacting with the world around you all the time. There's no way to not be in interaction with the rest of reality all the time. It's all inside your mind. You carry it with you everywhere you go. <laughs> so there's no way to isolate from it. There is uh, a lack of inherited existence. Like you say, um, this object nearby me, say my clothes because it's very close. It's not separate. It doesn't exist all by itself. I'm I'm actively in the mode of creating it as as I experience it. I'm I'm creating it as I experience it because right now, uh, if you've been around monks, you know right now it's a robe. Uh, I've seen lots of monks later. It'll be a blanket. It could be a towel. <laughs> uh, it could be anything. So you are actively involved in. Creating your world, it's all happening inside of your mind, and you're doing it by labeling. Imputation is what we would say. But things don't exist solid like that all by themselves. You're the one doing it. I had a friend, um, maybe I'll finish with this one. I had a friend once. This was years ago. And he said, uh, well, there are things that surely don't exist inside of my mind because, you know, that, for example, my car is outside and uh, I'm in here so I can no longer see my car. It's like, yep. For you, for you at the moment, the car doesn't exist. He said, well, if I take a camera and point it at the car and we have a display here and we can see the car, well, then, um, you know, then um, I can prove that the car still exists, even though it's not inside my mind right now. It's like, yeah, well, I, I tried to be as polite as I could be in the moment, even though I still think that I really did hurt his feelings because I, I think he really took it personally. But I was like, yeah, I just want to gently remind you that you're not looking at the car anymore. You're looking at a TV Right, so everything that is happening is happening inside of your mind and nowhere else. It can't happen anywhere else. There is no gap between you and the rest of the universe. That is a delusion that is causing an immense amount of pain. Okay, so as I wrap up, I'd like to just encourage you to think, perhaps we can even talk about it. Uh, how is it that you've understood emptiness so far? Like you've heard this word, you've, you've been around Buddhist people, at some point someone said the word emptiness. What did you, what did you think that it meant? How did, did it make any difference in your life? What is the, what is the point of meditating on emptiness? I mean, to me, 
the greatest benefits about meditating on emptiness is that you become um, a mature type person, <laughs> a grown up. Like you actually are thinking about the world in the way that the world actually exists. There's nothing that is, has nothing to do with you. Everything that you interact with has something to do with you. You're involved. So um, if we think about the our reality in this way, you'll become a more realistic person. It's helped me in, on many times throughout my life uh, remain calm when I know that I'm agitating myself because I'm getting myself worked up like these people or this circumstance can't be. <laughs> well, you can loosen up and say, okay, well, I'm helping to define what's going on here. So maybe if I loosen up my mind about it a bit, I could um, have a new interpretation of what's going on. It's empty that way. You can fill it up with whatever thoughts you like. So uh, these are some of the thoughts about uh, the Buddhist understanding of emptiness. We would say... Wisdom teachings, the highest wisdom teachings in Buddhism are about emptiness, how it exists. And as you gain experience and understand it more, you travel along the spiritual path towards enlightenment. Thank you very much. Do we have any questions? Bob, go ahead. All right, Bob, I didn't, didn't look. That's okay. A lot of people don't notice me. Um, just kidding. Good to see you, Bob. I, you I, I'm not here. Um, all I can say is your talk was very interesting. I'm not going to say I understood it, but I got the impression while you were talking that if the psychotherapist is going to be successful with the patient. The psychotherapist will get the patient in touch with nothingness. And the moment he does, there will be an improvement. But as soon as the patient realizes it's nothingness, it's gone. Um, I don't know if that comes close to the ideas you were saying, but that was the impression I got. Psychotherapy, get connected with the nothing. Yeah, at least uh, make uh, some wiggle room for you to be able to think of your situation in a new way. I would back away from, gently back away from the word nothingness, because there's definitely some somethingness going on, or else we wouldn't be with a psychotherapist. But I think what you're trying to express is that it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. Or it's... It's no thing. It's no big thing. Am I supposed to be looking for a... Uh, Jeff, oh yeah, Jeff, sorry. Uh, maybe I should get my lights out of there. I can't quite see that well. Hi, Zedan. Thank you for a great talk. You know, this reminds me of um, when I first started to study Buddhism and somebody said things like, it's only in your mind. <laughs> and... Uh, you know, I can think of numerous examples where I've stubbed my toe and my toe's bleeding. And what do you mean that pain isn't real? But um, aren't you saying that we're 
you're distinguishing between the relative and the absolute? Yes, that is definitely one level of it. So um, <clears throat> we say, for example, um, there is conventional truth and ultimate truth. Mm -hmm. The pain when you stub your toe is real. Yeah. It's not real in the way that, you know, we're used to thinking about it, but it is real. Mm -hmm. Doesn't it, it doesn't exist without you. <laughs> I mean, obviously you're the one experiencing it. So yeah, without you, there's no pain, but, um, it allows us to put a wedge into our perception to be able to open it up into, uh, other interpretations of what's going on and why, why it's going on. Mm -hmm. I, I know that Jeff, you've uh, um, been a little closer, much closer than I have been to uh, Theravadan, Theravadan teachings. Do they compare to Mahayana teachings? Well, I think essentially they do. You know, the three poisons and, and um, jewels and, and this concept, or it's not a concept, the holding, the worldview that there is a relative and an absolute reality. And really what we, we don't want to put our eggs in the basket of the relative because it, everything that comes and goes is not real. Ultimately, if we want to find happiness or peace of mind, we have to uh, cultivate our own experience of emptiness, which yeah. you could say is like the substrata of it. The, the things that come and go, they aren't real in the way that we're used to thinking them as being real they are appearance so if you're satisfied with just saying like you know it's almost like accepting the fact that you're an actor you're appearing on the stage of life and others appear and they come and they go and there's nothing very solid and real about that but it is happening mm -hmm. there it's real in that it is happening. The way that we're thinking about it is all wrong. If we can, if you just uh, be satisfied with um, mere imputation, like yeah, it's a bad thing. It, it's uh, you just won the lottery. Is that good or bad? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. Richard. Hi, um, thank you for your talk. Uh, you said something at the, at the end that, that made me think, um, about changing your viewpoint. Um, that we realize that when we, um, observe something <clears throat> that's happening in the world or happening around us or to us, that what we perceive it as isn't necessarily true and we can choose to look at it in a different way. I know His Holiness the 14th Dalai Lama teaches that there are many ways to look at anything and no, there can't be all bad ways to look at something. That they're all, there may be positive, there may be negative, there may be painful, there may be calming ways to look at this very same thing. So is this what you're referring to with the idea of being able to change our point of view, changes its reality for us? Yeah, thank you for that question. Yeah, absolutely, I, I would agree. Um, but I would I would shy away from saying that it's going to make uh, your reality into Never Neverland. It is definitely not going to do that. 
there are definitely going to be things going wrong. Like there are corrections to be made in your reality. And one of them is the way that you see it. And so it leaves the door open, wide open, to be able to reinterpret what's happening and why it's happening. And there are going to be some dark things. We are not perfect. We have lots of uh, foibles, frailties, inconsistencies, malice, anger, all that's in there. Look at it. It's the only way that you can begin to fix it is uh, accepting what is appearing and then um, thinking about more constructive ways. It can it can take uh, years. It can happen in the moment. So um, it just depends on your experience level and uh, how, you know, how um, open you are to it at that moment. Sometimes some issues are way harder than others. So it takes a lot of practice. So thank you for that question. Yeah. Tom, wow, we've got lots of questions going on today. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Zerdan. Um, you know, I really liked what you were saying about everything happens in our mind, you know, like, our entire experience. And sometimes when I'm meditating, I close my eyes, I get quiet. And of course there are still sensations going on. I hear something outside. I feel the warmth of the sun on me, all these different things. And sometimes I imagine that I'm contained in a small dark box during my meditation. And everything is like something bumping the box, touching the box, a sound outside, somebody knocking on the box, whatever. And to me, that's sort of a metaphor for my mind. Like everything happens inside the box. I don't really know what's happening outside the box except this interpretation because all of my senses transmit, uh, you know, a nerve impulse to my, my brain. If that's where thinking happens, like my fingers transmit a nerve impulse, my eyes, my ears, everything is filtered through these electronic nerve impulses that I translate in my head into reality. And so, you know, I guess that's sort of a, you know, scientifically informed interpretation, but it exactly, it helps me completely understand what you're talking about. Yeah, I agree. Um, I've been, uh, I've been earlier in my life, I was around medicine and now I'm kind of re-entering into the field of medicine again with some health and in, health information, technology stuff. And, uh, the body is fascinating to me. It, it's amazing that it works at all. Right? On, on paper, uh, it shouldn't work, <laughs> uh, but it does. Here we are. Um, that any of it works at all is just an amazing miracle. And, and yeah, there is, um, there is nothing that you can talk about that is not part of your mind. Here's another fun exercise. <clears throat> when I was with a kind of a higher level monk once, he asked me, um, can you, can you imagine a universe where there are no sentient beings? What could such a place exist? And we think, you know, as Western people, because we have a very objective point of view, 
I'm here, you're there, I'm the subject, you're the object, we have nothing to do with each other. Just completely wrong. So um, can such a universe exist if there are no sentient beings inside that universe? So you can go into meditation even just briefly now, thinking about it, you know, is there is there such a universe? Well, as you create that universe in your mind, you are there. <laughs> you can never make it into a universe where there are no sentient beings. So we, according to our experience of being <clears throat> primates, of being sentient beings, Everything that is inside of reality is inside of the mind. It's not happening anywhere else. We can't even prove it that anything's happening outside of our mind. If, if you try to prove it, you, you fall flat on your face. So it is, um, it sounds trifling at first. Like, why, why is this important? But as you meditate about it and think about it, as the years and decades roll by, <clears throat> it's really important. Uh, because then you recognize that it's the one thing that you have any kind of control over. <laughs> you don't really have any control over it at the moment if you've just begun. Um, you, But as you meditate, you'll begin to have glimpses of what it would be like to, you know, calm down, um, rethink things, reanalyze, think about things in a different way. I'm telling you, no joke, there have been times when it has uh, saved me from being really destitute. Like, the world is a horrifying place. Children under five, thousands of them will de- die today. Are we doing anything about that? But then I have to remember that, you know, I'm the one who's agitating myself. Of course, we should do something about that. Do I need to get worked up? Not necessarily, no. I mean, you can proceed calmly into the future, even though knowing that some things are going right and some things are going wrong. That is reality. That's what's going on inside of your mind. That is reality. So, yeah, it is uh, It is our body. It is our brain. It's our mind and how it's all functioning together to create our our, our reality. Thank you for the question. It's great. How are we doing on time? It's about time. I should probably wrap up. Yeah, if there are no more, uh, no further questions, thank you for a really uh, enlightening talk. Very um, provocative. Um, gives me a lot to think about. Um, okay. Um, do we have any announcements? Do we have a host today? Yes, I'm the host and uh, uh, teleprompter of page. <laughs> Please stay and enjoy the company of the Salka. There are refreshments and hot water for tea. If treats are vegan, gluten-free, use a cup, please wash it uh, with hot soapy water and leave it to dry on the rack or ask the used cups to be left in the sink. So, Wash and are placed in the dishwasher if it is ready for dirty cups. I'll be going around with the donable to accept contributions to cover our expenses. Your generosity is appreciated. If the facilitator has not mentioned it, 
and following sets. Donations in the range of $10 to $20 help the song meet its expenses. These include honorarium for our drama speakers, rent, the beautiful center, monthly dinners we prepare for our Street Food Services, our quarterly newsletter mailed mostly to people in prison. There's a newcomer sign-up sheet on the credenza if you wish to include and receive our song of membership directory. Please sign up and include contact information you wish to share with your group. Some members go out for lunch after the meeting. Everyone is welcome to join them. The group meets at the front door around 1230. Great. Thank you. Um, any other uh, announcements? I have an announcement uh, that we we are in need of volunteers and particularly uh, a, an additional speaker coordinator. Um, if you're interested to find more, out more, let me know or cast. Thank you. Great, thank you. Um, okay. Zerdin, would you like to do the dedication of merit? Or we can use ours? Yes, please. Yeah, let's just use yours because it's appropriate. Okay. Nice. Every time I hear it, I love it. Okay. And um, so we'll gather in a circle. Next week, um, our speaker will be uh, Kevin Martin, who has practiced inside tradition for decades. His socialist practice centers on uprooting patriarchal systems in Dharma communities. Kevin is made known for create, co-creating spiritual grounds for men at the community uh, teacher. So. By the power and truth of this practice, may all beings have happiness and the cause of the happiness. May all be free from sorrow and the cause of the sorrow. May all never be separated from the sacred happiness which is without sorrow. May all live in equanimity without too much attachment or too much aversion, believing in the equality of all that lives. Thank you, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Gay Buddhist Forum. If you would like to hear several new talks per month and be notified of upcoming speakers so you can participate live, Please subscribe to this podcast, like us on Facebook, and join our mailing list by visiting gaybuddhist.org.